0: Head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps
1: us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch
0: today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Go. Uh.
1: <laughs> the only one I can think of Is the best little house in Texas Which I've never even seen <laughs> How sad is that The
0: dude has 176 credits And you Somebody's can think bankrupt. of You can think of the one movie that you haven't seen <laughs> um, um, Paternity <laughs> Oh my god You're terrible <laughs> oh, God If you see this is the thing if you were a Burt Reynolds movie, you'd be like Cannonball Run 2.
1: There you go. I, you know, <laughs> all dogs go to heaven.
0: Oh, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, I'm just not. Uh, man. It. I know. Hooper. Anything? You haven't seen Hooper? Mr. Hooper? He played Mr. Hooper. Sonny, Sonny Hooper.
1: Hi, Annie.
0: Oh, so Hooper was great. Hooper was great. Way underappreciated that film, Hooper. Sonny Hooper. That was one of my favorites.
1: How are you, Annie? You're
0: not. You you're not even paying attention to me.
1: <laughs> why why are we talking about Burt Reynolds? I don't know. Besides he's in the news this week.
0: I because he's bankrupt. Because he's bankrupt. Yes. Why do you like to uh, pick, at, pick at for... other people's pain? <laughs>
1: well, he's advertising it. <laughs>
0: That's the worst.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: uh I don't know. I, I don't know I why I started. Heard. Yeah, hey, right. He Shreed was in or... he was in uh Boogie Nights. Exactly. That's actually where I expected you to go. But strip teats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to celebrate the uh the earlier what I call the uh Reynolds canon. Mm. Not not these off these <laughs> blacklist uh titles from later. I...
1: Like paternity, there were like some from my childhood that I swear I saw way too many times. Especially probably for as young as I was, I shouldn't have been watching them. Yeah, you know, and it's like paternity, and what was the other one? Um, gosh, I can't remember. Some best friends or one of those. That, I don't know. That sounds awful.
0: horrible. I I remember it, but not. I don't remember anything about it. It just sounds horrible. Yeah, there were some bad ones. People don't make movies called Best Friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of Hooper, you know who was in Hooper? Who? jan Michael Vincent. <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> hey, uh is do, uh, Sharknado Two out yet? Have you seen it? It is came, it out? Out, it came yesterday, out yesterday. Did you I see did it?
1: Not, I did not see
0: I it. I didn't either. But but I, I see t- the first one. I can't it, watch the second one until I seen They're the first They're the same. They're the same. <laughs> it's the same movie. I don't think just watch it's just a stream of shark consciousness. Yes. Yeah. Oh man. I I only I heard a, a review uh, A critic was talking about <laughs> about it. And this line that she said, she said, How can you fail to appreciate? Like lines like this. Um, it's okay. I know you're scared because they're sharks and sharks are scary. Like that's some great writing. (laughs) Wow. Do they actually
1: have like the actors write their own
0: lines? (laughs) (laughs) Oh goodness. That's funny. Hey, have you seen that? Speaking of interesting, uh, uh, shows quick draw on Hulu. It's a Hulu plus show. Have you seen this quick draw? No, I'm, I may be speaking out of school on this show. um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I ended up getting a, like a, uh, I don't know, it was a clout perk, I think. Mm. Um, y- you know, they, when you, uh, I don't know, when you schmooze on social media enough, you start getting perks. And so I got this perk on clout. And it said, hey, you should watch uh, Quick Draw on Hulu and see what you think. So season two is coming out. And I'd never really uh, given much thought to Quick Draw. But it turns out uh, Quick Draw is... It's kind of a funny it's a funny show and it 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 is an entirely improvised half hour comedy. Uh, it's a western. This Ooh. Harvard law grad becomes the sheriff in this little tiny town Great Bend Kansas in 1875 and it's it's like improvised
1: interesting
0: it's totally worth checking out an, I, an
1: improvised period comedy <laughs> an
0: improvised period comedy, and it sort of blows me away like you watch a couple of episodes of it, and the fact that it holds together and gets like you can if you start from episode one season one and watch through three or four episodes, you can actually feel the actors getting better hmm. it's interesting. it's and so by the by by season two episode one, which is what which was my clout perk uh it's it's a it's a tight little comedy show i i was really uh i was really into it i'm having a good time with it oh interesting you heard it here a second Everybody, thanks for joining us. It's The Next Reel. It's uh, we uh, we spoil movies. I'm Pete Wright. That there's Andy Nelson. Yo, and uh, uh we are, are gonna we're gonna talk about a, a, a fine Terry Gilliam film tonight. But before we do that, we want you to head over to the nextreel.com. You can read the blog stylings of the goodly kindly Steve Sarmento. You can jump into the conversation with us uh, on facebook.com slash The or twitter.com slash The Next Wheel. The Next Wheel. <laughs> Next real Elmer uh, Fudd is on the show tonight. Truly, truly. That Eric Idol. That's oh, awesome, right? That is pretty cool. I'm telling you, sometimes, you know, they reach out of the darkness and reach out to us on Twitter. And say that's something nice. something fantastic.
1: That uh, yeah,
0: was pretty great. Uh, and uh, I think that more oh, people should more people should be following us more on people so should they be following. <laughs> that's right. They would know. <laughs> uh, let me uh, let me just say this. The other thing to say, and this always shocks me because I don't hang out on Pinterest, but when I go to Pinterest uh, for our page, I'm constantly blown away by the number of awesome posters that you are putting up there.
1: There are a lot. And oh, my that, God. The thing I love about movie posters nowadays is it's not just the standard studio posters that that are always appearing, but you have so many fantastic just artists doing their own interpretations of posters. And so it's really fun just to kind of look and see what posters are out there these days.
0: They are great. Great, great, great. I have a ball every time I look at them. So if you head over to uh, the next reel or Pinterest.com slash the next reel, um, you know, we have poster collections. We have a poster collection for the next reel and the film board. uh, So you can see all of the recent Planet of the Apes. um, And and then just this collection of amazing movie posters that you've put together. And so it it is great. But that that next reel poster collection is over a thousand movie posters. That's a lot of posters it is It is stunning it is great uh and and the Munchausen uh posters in particular are are really quite striking the oh, one yes. the one they used for the, the theatrical release was is lame it's true and this i i think goes for a lot of films, but it's really lame by comparison. Oh, yeah. Um, so.
1: Yeah. You get so many more interesting posters from other countries yeah. or just different kind of the B styles that, uh, yeah. that end up out there. Or, like I said, all these interesting ones that people are making now. So right, lots right. of fun
0: stuff. Really good stuff. Yeah, The Buttle Tuttle Brazil poster is one of my favorite ones. Oh, yes. The red one. Yeah. So go check that out. Uh, Andy, tell me, do we have an update from Andy versus the people? Hashtag guess the movie. Hashtag Pony Prize.
1: You bet you! You bet we do. <laughs> How'd you do this week? This was a good week, despite being maybe potentially poorly timed with the news. Oh. <laughs> but you know, one doesn't always think about these things. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I I, uh, I picked Munich, Steven Spielberg's film from 2005, which I think is one of his great films. Um. And it was a, a really challenging film for people to nail. And it uh, was uh, right up to the wire is the, the last image that I posted. And uh, good old Alexander C. Curran. Hey. He figured it out, finally threw the guess out there, and he was right. So he is entered to win our pony prize. Nice. Nice. Indeed. Indeed.
0: I like uh, Hunt Thug Nasty came in close with Ninja Assassin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he, he almost deserves like a, a second, second place for that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh, what a great game. What a great game. Yeah. Do you have your movie picked out for this week? Are you ready I to do. Go? You I do, do already? Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: right. yeah, I don't have the images. I got to start picking images tonight, but uh, <laughs> I'll get it sorted very quickly.
0: <laughs> uh, that's another one. You head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel, and you can p- uh, play along with the, uh, the Guess the Movie Pony Prize. And uh, there you go absolutely all right let's do trailers
1: i'm gonna go first andy nelson all right just because you're so excited
0: <laughs> is that what that is, is that what that sound <laughs> is on my face let me tell you i am excited i didn't realize how excited i was about this film uh until i saw the trailer like i knew it was coming i knew we were it was, it was out there that's fine but then i saw the trailer and i was taken back we're doing uh, fury road this week first trailer came out and this was a hell of a week for trailers with comic con and oh my goodness there's a lot to choose from but the fury road uh, trailer came out and i'm telling you even though we don't see a whole lot of tom hardy in this film this is um this looks gruesome
1: i love the the concept that uh Uh, they have with the story for this one that basically it's just a road trip from one end to the other and it's just them constantly moving. And it's just a story as (laughs) on the road going uh, along this whole journey, which I think is pretty fun.
0: It never stops. Uh, Well, it rarely stops. I think there are sequences in here where you see it stop (laughs) mostly as they, Oh, tie each other up to cars and then start driving again. (laughs) Um, But uh, Tom Hardy, at least from behind looks great. Um, Uh, you know, it is, it's, it's a George Miller joint. It feels just like uh, Mad Max, you know? I mean, it's, uh, it, this, this takes me right back into Canon, you know, this was, this was great.
1: Yeah. It's, it's very exciting. You're right. You don't, Tom Hardy, you don't see a whole lot of him or when you do, it seems like he's kind of strapped to the car a lot. Yeah.
0: A lot of that Uh, tied up getting tattooed.
1: Yeah. So, um, but you know, the characters, like they just all have a great look and I'm, I'm, hoping that he can pull off that, that grittiness. I mean, just from the stories of the, the shoot for this, it sounds like it was, uh, it was kind of a, its own little hell for yeah. a lot of the, the people involved. And so I have a feeling that uh, the, the feeling of that grittiness is really going to come through, and it's not going to feel just like a glossy Hollywood production. Totally. It certainly doesn't from the trailer.
0: Totally, absolutely agree with that. It's uh so uh, directed by uh George Miller, written by Nick Lathuris, Brendan McCarthy, and George Miller, and uh stars. Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, who man, they can they can sure uh they can sure mess her up.
1: She cut her arm off for this.
0: Right. That's yeah. that's commitment. <laughs> it sure is. Uh Rosie Huntington Whiteley. Uh, which is, I believe, she was the, uh, uh, Rosie was the in, in Transformers 4, right? Or Transformers 3, right? Uh, she was in Dark of the Moon. She replaced, uh, oh. what's her name? I think oh, that's her yeah. only other credit. Like, that, th- that's the only other, she's a model and has, you know, yes. just like Victoria's Secret model or something. And then uh, uh, Zoe Kravitz uh, is in it. And, you know, I only bring her up because she was one I liked in uh, Divergent.
1: Uh, right, yeah. right.
0: So uh, anyway, a big cast, lots of driving, and it comes out uh, in uh, May 15th, 2015. So we've got uh, just over a year, or under a year.
1: And we already have that on our list for shows next year. Yeah,
0: because we're doing the whole thing, right?
1: Yeah, we're going to do all four movies. Love it. Quite excited. We'll be there. Well, my movie is uh, a little bit of a change from yours. It is called Hector and the Search for Happiness. Which, uh, you know, I saw this trailer, and it, stories like this just, you know, they always hit home with me. And I just love the idea. I love the the look and the feel of the film. Um, it has Simon Pegg, who I just love, um, plus Rosamund Pike, who it's very easy to fall in love with, and Stellan Skarsgård and uh, Jean Reno, and Tony Collette, and Christopher Plummer. I mean, it's got this fantastic cast, and it's about this guy, Hector, who's just kind of like stuck in a rut as as a psychiatrist, not sure what he's doing with his life, and decides he has to go on the road and search, figure out what is, you know, what is happiness. And it just, it rings that bell of, you know, that, that, you know, potentially saccharine story, but one that just uh, kind of, is just such a feel-good, honest feel-good sort of story that it just sucks me in. And the trailer, just everything about it just makes me happy. And so, uh, you know, I found my happiness already with the trailer for Hector and the Search for Happiness. You know, I I
0: love it. It feels really, uh, it feels very well-rounded to me. You know, what I like most about this is this is almost an answer uh, in terms of a a cinematic call and answer uh, exercise to Simon Pegg's a fantastic fear of everything. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's like, he's doing a little bit of a cleansing. Right. uh, Coming into this one. So I, (laughs) you know, I think it's, I think it's great, uh, and, and it does. It looks very sweet, and and you're right. It does hit home, and I think this goes back to men of a certain age problems, right? It's this whole right. idea of, you know, what a great series this and Secret Life of Walter Mitty and, you know, the, the, these films of trying to figure out uh, what it is we're doing here. Why do we exist in this space? And yeah. I, I, I really look forward to it. When does it hit?
1: Uh, September 19th. All right. Directed by um, Peter Chelsom, who last brought us Hannah Montana the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's so a good there's thing that. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, if you look at his credits, you may think, well, maybe I shouldn't go watch this movie. Town and Country,
0: Serendipity,
1: mm. Shall We Dance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's just close his <laughs> right.
0: We don't well, need to see his y- filmography. You know who's, uh, you know who else is uh isn't is this Rosamund, uh Pike? Oh yeah. And I you know, I feel like I'm I've <laughs> Cause this is back on me on Gone Girl. Have you read that yet? I still haven't. Oh There's man, I enough. need somebody to talk about it with. So would you hurry up? Well, I'm busy watching Game of
1: Thrones finally. So <laughs> Oh, oh, you can
0: do you have permission to to okay. continue. Thank continue you. right ahead. Uh, Good. Uh, Let's, uh, I I think we need to go get
1: the Grail. Okay, Jack, we're on the air in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, it's Monday morning, and I'm Jack Lucas. In the world of talk radio, Jack Lucas was king. Look, I said I want an offer. They can forget it. To stay on top. He did whatever he had to. Forgive me. But one day,
0: Jack went too far. It was
1: Mr. Lucas's
0: offhand remark that seemed to have fatal impact on Mr. Malnick. No matter what I have, it feels like I have nothing. Yo, what's going on? And just when he was about to give up on his
1: own life, he stumbled into Perry's.
0: Unhand that degenerate
1: and remove your presence.
0: <laughs> ah like New York in June. How about you? You know who I am? A food ornament. No. I'm a knight on a special quest. A quest? And I need help. Jack
1: has to do something he's never done before. Isn't she a vision? I'm deeply smitten. Help someone else. My thought that if i could get him this uh this girl that he loves things would change for me let's do it right here let's go to that place of splendor in the yeah. ground and this is perry perry
0: perry perry
1: no just perry
0: uh, like moses <laughs> i think they were ready for each other <laughs> scary
1: Sometimes to find yourself. I'm the janitor of God. You find some pretty wonderful things in the trash. You have to risk it all. Bingo! I'm not doing that. Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges,
0: the Fisher King. I love him, God! The in public oh, again. God. All right, uh, Andrew, here we are. This is, We're continuing our Terry Gilliam series. Mm-hmm with uh 1991's film the fisher king uh written by uh, richard la Gravenaise and directed by terry the man gilliam starring robin mm-hmm. williams jeff bridges mercedes rule amanda Plummer, and michael jeter what do you think i love it do you i do do you, do you love it the most nope most. <laughs> <laughs> okay do you love it the second most
1: Yes, I think so. I, I'm curious to see uh, where Twelve Monkeys ends up falling next week. I know. Because, I know. Like I forget how good all these movies are, and mm. I hadn't seen Fisher King in years because I have it on stinking LaserDisc. The Criterion <laughs> disc and it's
0: like a joke.
1: <laughs> it really is. It is. And I actually had to had to I break broke down and actually got the got the Blu-ray to watch it because I can't even plug my my Laserdisc player into my modern no. televisions because they all are they're all component. And I only have a composite out of the blue. Are Laser. you kidding? So, you know, I listened to the commentary, but I had to the picture was just like this fuzzy black and white thing. It was horrible. It was horrible. So
0: that is such a cruel, ironic <laughs> joke. That's what that was. Oh uh,
1: Yeah. So come on, Criterion, get your button gear and get it out there.
0: I remember for so many years you with your laser discs uh, collecting for time immemorial. Yeah. That yeah. day has come, my friend. <laughs> the day of reckoning. Yes, it has. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Can I, I want to, I want to read you uh, a paragraph. It's a moderately long paragraph. Okay, and I just want to see what you uh what you think. I'm not going to read the you know the whole thing, but just read this. The Fisher King is a disorganized, rambling, and eccentric movie that contains some moments of truth, some moments of humor, and many moments of digression. The filmmakers are nothing if not generous. We get urban grit, showbiz angst, two love affairs, the holy grail, the homeless, an action sequence, a dance sequence, and an apocalyptic figure on a horse who rides through Central Park with flames shooting from his head. Even with such excess, at 137 minutes, the film shows signs of having been pruned of some of its quiet spots. Or did they intend to have all those scenes back-to-back in which people shout at each other? The film stars Jeff Bridges as Jack, a radio talk show host whose unbalanced listener goes on a shooting spree, apparently following Jack's advice. Jack is devastated and quits his job and drops into a long alcoholic reverie, only to be redeemed by Perry, Robin Williams, a homeless man who is convinced the Holy Grail is in the possession of a Manhattan billionaire, and together they can find it. The screenplay by Richard LeGrovenez seems to have been constructed like an airliner with fail-safe redundancy. You know what that is? I don't know what that is. That is a two-star review from the Ebert. Wow! Two stars he gave this movie. What a stinker! I was I was uh, driven to a cinematic rage when I read this. I was so frustrated yeah. um, because it. Uh, and I'm I know I'm sure we're going to get comments about people who are who are far more uh, maybe pragmatic and rational about this film than I am. But I, I really love this film. I really do. And it, I found myself—this is the first time in a long time that I've read an Ebert review that disagreed with me, and I felt like he is totally wrong. He's yeah. just wrong. I, I, um, I, did, I, I do have some points of agreement, uh, or maybe one point of agreement in, in his review, which we'll talk about, but, but generally I was very frustrated by that. I think this movie is is really very strong and I think it's strong for a number of reasons. First of all, it's it it gets it it dumps so much of it dumps just enough of the uh the fantastic coming off of the his of Gilliam's last three movies uh that it it feels like we get more of a sensibility of Terry Gilliam the grown-up. And that Terry Gilliam is capable of devising relationships um, that have a much more natural or intrinsic emotional connection, and once we have that emotional connection cemented, uh, I think we go along with anything uh, and, he, and he has a lot more to to be able to play with us and I think they uh, I think between these particularly the four char- main uh, major characters Robin Williams, Jeff Bridges, and Amanda Plummer, and Mercedes rule, um, we have an incredibly beautifully tight Uh, emotional foursome that plays so well on screen that I'll I'll follow them anywhere.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think the film was cast perfectly. Uh, I think those four people are so solid in their roles here that uh, it's just like uh, everything about them feels right in in all ways. And I I love watching the four of them interact um, in whatever, you know, two of them together or all four of them, however it is. They're just... All just, I think, electric in their roles and perfect. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I think you're right about the, the. This is really a chance for Terry Gilliam to step back from the extravagant sets, and I, I think he specifically ended up picking this script because of that, um, finding something that was not so big and elaborate and full of special effects, but something that was more character driven and gave him more of an opportunity to show people that, you know, show Hollywood in a large sense uh, that he could do stuff that, uh, you know, came in on budget, that other people had written, that uh, you know, still made money and succeeded at the box office and it was a quality film. And um, but also just to, to show that he can really tap into these characters. I think he had been Labeled um, so much up to this point as a filmmaker who can can make pretty pictures, but doesn't really focus so much on the characters. And I I, I think that I, I I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with the characters in his in his previous films, but this one I think is the film where he really found the right way to tap into um, the personas of these four characters. And I mean, obviously, the uh, Richard script helps tremendously but I think Terry found the right way to to build the scenes with these characters and to let them live these roles and uh I mean I think a perfect example is the moment where everything is going right for uh for Jack and he's he you know kind of got um Perry hooked up with Lydia, everything seems like it's going good, and then he breaks, he has this moment where he has this conversation with Anne about, you know, just having some time apart and splitting up, and and it's this, it's this incredibly powerful scene, the way that it's written is beautiful, but the way that Terry chose to shoot that is really just like, if you watch that scene, it's just, the vast majority of it is one shot. This shot of just them having a conversation, and he knows when to allow his two actors to have time to work together and just develop the scene in one single shot, and they know how to play it. And then he also knows where to cut out of that and to to use that as a transition in the emotional story. And it's – I mean, it's it's fantastic filmmaking, and he really – proves here that he can do more than just these extravagant fantastical films.
0: I, I I that is such a terrific example that sequence. I and and credit to Le Gravenais too that um that sequence in spite of all of the and and no bones about it. it Jeff Bridges is a dude that can play damaged. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah. Oh, he yeah. can channel damaged better than many others uh, actors on screen. And yet <clears throat> that sequence of him turning his life around and watching the ego take over was so such a beautiful pivot to this guy that you think has learned the lessons you think right. he's there he's arrived he's learned the lessons and then he torpedoes it himself yeah. he does this 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 emotional seppuku by uh, by turning on the one person who's stuck by him all along, and yet uh, it that sequence as straight as as Gilliam played that sequence visually. One of the things that I, I really am, am drawn to is the is how he uses he is capable just at the flick of a switch he's capable of using the actors as fantastic set pieces by the way he portrays them visually do you notice you know when he needs to to get this sense of compression he goes back to that tried old super wide angle close up uh, right. a, a thing that he does, you know. There's this great sequence where, um, uh, you know, where Lydia is trying to escape. You, you know, she's had her nails done and she's a little tipsy, and she's on their floor and she tries to crawl into the corner. And and that <laughs> sequence is just so beautiful because it goes that super wide angle where you see the whole apartment and her face just gets so big and it draws me back to Brazil. It draws right. me back to Munchausen. It draws me back to, uh, you know, to the Terry Gilliam I know from the Fantastic. And yet he's doing so and in. in, in you know, playing with the people on stage without the fantastic sets and the fantasies, doing so in a way that I think really adds a texture, a visual texture to this film that um, that that makes it that much more appealing to me.
1: Yeah, and then with that, I think he also knows he and Richard know the right way to move from the fantastical elements, like the Red Knight, uh, and and kind of folding that in and out of the story, so it doesn't feel over-the-top, in-your-face, hey, this is a fantasy set in New York sort of thing. It all works in the context of the story, and it, it, it really just takes you into the psyche of Perry, this damaged man, and even at, toward the end when, uh, when Jack kind of takes you know, Perry's role essentially and to, to go into this castle and retrieve the grail. And he starts hearing the horses and he sees Edmund coming up the stairs with the gun and everything. And he really kind of gets into his head. It, it plays well with that psyche, but it keeps that beautiful Gilliam fantastical touch that he has. Uh, but it fits in, in a context in the film that still makes it work in the real world.
0: Yeah, I I think that was a that was a, that's a great point. The because we we establish through his just you know back to the world building uh, we establish that the fantasy is reality for Perry. And right. and that that that's that's like our our entree into being able to see things like the the red knight uh and establishes a context for it. Um, so, when it pivots at the end and and bridges starts to see those we we 've already established that it 's approved this is approved behavior cinematic behavior it doesn 't take us out of out of the context of of the film i think that's that's a really elegant uh manipulation
1: yeah yeah it's beautiful
0: um, the uh can we we just we need to talk a little bit about Robin Williams, sure because in so many ways uh you know I think this is uh, this is a part, this is one of those parts that he was meant to play, you know, oh, yeah. um, I, I see him in this role and he just, he just takes such ownership of it. And, and I, I say that with the caveat that there were, there were just a few sequences where, and it's, it's really the Perry who is the, uh, the homeless vigilante, right? When yeah. he's, when he's got a shield out and he's out and he's beating up the guys who are beating up homeless guys. Um it, where, he becomes the unrestrained comedian, Robin Williams. do you get that feeling
1: yeah, I mean he inevitably that happens. I mean you even get a little bit of that in Dead Poet society where you know when he's kind of talking to his class and it, it, all of a sudden you kind of get that Robin Williams comedy coming out, you know when he's john wayne whatever and and that definitely spills out here uh, and that's a perfect point um uh, where you really see it is when he um confronts the you know first confronts those those thugs as they're getting ready to uh set uh, jack on fire and it really comes across i, I think he does better here at kind of m- making it fit the character a little more do you really you know,
0: that's i on that i disagree i i don't i don't feel it um well, wait, is, is is it finish that, your point is,
1: well no is it that particular scene
0: yeah, I think there are there are two of them, uh, right? There are the uh, two sequences where he's out there, and one he gets he gets uh, sliced up, uh, but but we, it's that first sequence when he's rescuing Jack, and and that's just it, it. Just it ends up being over the top, Robin Williams, and and I think it would be okay if it wasn't Robin Williams, because Robin Williams is so noted for that behavior, right? For yeah, that yeah. specific behavior in Dead Poet Society. I never felt like I was out of the character. I, I never got that feeling. I felt like he was absolutely appropriate doing what he was doing in front of that class right uh, and, and so he he was just a he was a terrific performer in that in in those films, and here it, it's a little bit unrestrained, and it takes me out of the out of the film. That's the only place in the film that I, I felt like I'm I'm just not in it. It's to Robin Williams, and this is in contrast to after the rescue that he takes him back to his domicile, and is uh, is bringing Jeff Bridges back to health by letting him rest and feeding him rancid uh, you know fruit pies, and <laughs> uh, and and I think that's some of his best uh, work in the film. Well and
1: I yeah and I I guess I will agree with you. I mean I I it I guess I'm used to it maybe is 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 what's happened and I've kind of gotten used to that scene that whole sequence of him saving him. Um and I think part of that is the script and part of that is Robin because some of that is just kind of this crazy you know, we're being introduced to this very strange world of the homeless, right? Where you know the guy, the old Gandalf-looking guy, stands up and screams suddenly, and then and Robin stands up and screams with him, and then they greet each other, and it's it's this weird world that yeah. you know. It's like okay, that doesn't necessarily strike me as normal, even in the world of the homeless. Um, and, and so so I don't know. To me, to me, it seems like. Part of that is just the way all of that's written, because if you look at Perry, for the most part, I mean, he does seem kind of a little mousier, you know, like after, yeah, uh, like when when he, like you said, when he, uh, when Jack wakes up and he's in Perry's basement um, or in that kind of that little basement place where Perry's kind of made a, a nest for himself, um, he seems a lot mousier. And, and yes, he kind of goes after Lydia and, and all that sort of stuff and has this quest. And he's, you know, calls himself a knight, but he always seems mousier. And that that beginning when he first appears, he does come off as a much stronger character and a kind of a crazier character. <laughs> um, again, I I fault a lot of that with kind of just the way that the script is because it, it is a very over the top sequence. Well, uh,
0: and and I don't know was that was that scripted? Was all of his stuff scripted, or did they let you? Do you know if this was it part of the commentary that they tell you anything about what Williams was? kind of allowed to do
1: there, there was some improv, but, uh, I don't know how much of it was, um, specific scenes. If anything, it was, there were some lines and stuff like that, that were improv, but, um, I mean, my sense is that this scene was in the, in the script and they were shooting it. And if anything, I mean, they did do some rehearsals. So usually the improv comes out in rehearsals and then they kind of build it into the script. Right. Um, so if anything, it may have been, um, Uh, added into the scene but the scene would already have been there
0: well uh, yeah so here's the problem that i have with it right uh in in terms of his his journey right perry's journey yep he was the yuppie with his wife in the yuppie restaurant all ego and uh, not noticing the world around him right that's the message that we got by right. by the characterization of the restaurant and by Jack's initial monologue, um, you know when he essentially called out us or them uh, right. to his listener, and Perry's shock takes him to a place where he becomes the humble protector. Right. right. Everything in the film, except for his vigilanteism, uh, is is him being incredibly humble uh, as a, a protector. Right of yeah. of those around him, and he takes Jack on in that way, um, and that's that's why for me so early in the film to see him to be introduced to him in such a gregarious fashion uh, is, is something that I feel is out of context, and it, it's that that's one of the reasons I think it struck me sideways. It didn't feel that's the only part that didn't feel part of the character because of his journey that I was already sort of, uh, and and now I have to. I I have to realize I have the benefit of hindsight because we of course don't learn all of this until a flashback much later in the film, right? Uh, but but that's why it doesn't end up making sense to me on on repeat viewings.
1: No, and I I, I can see that. I, I guess I, I'm used to it now. Like I said, so it doesn't it doesn't uh, uh, yeah. bother me so much. But you're right in context of of the humble protector. Certainly, the protector is there, but he is oh, so not humble <laughs> yeah, that, right. in that particular rescue.
0: Right. And because, the you know, when he plays that humble character, he's just so great.
1: Yeah. His relationship,
0: really his... Oh, my goodness. The meeting, the following, the stalking of Amanda Plummer mm-hmm. uh, is precious. Is, oh, I it's know. It's precious.
1: Yeah, he, he comes across so delicately. And, yes. And that's what I love about him as Perry is all of that like the 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 little movements that he does as he's watching her and that the beautiful waltz that uh Gilliam fashioned in uh in the train station is just i mean it's just it it blew me away then and it still blows me away every time i see it it's just such a, an amazing way to kind of portray this this uh, this love that someone feels for somebody um but it creates just this like this delicate character of Perry that is he's so fragile and the way that he sees love and the way that he sees beauty in the world is, is fragile. And it, it and he plays that character uh, to a T uh, through the, through the rest of the film.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That, that sequence, um, the, the, the sequence in, uh, Grand central, uh, really is, a it's a work of art. Yeah. Uh, and and the staging of it, so getting, you know, realizing that they were closing Grand Central Station, I don't know, I, I sure would love you to fill in some of the, uh, uh, from the, the commentary. I, I watched a brief video of, of Gilliam talking about it, and, and he, uh, he, you know, the way he characterized it was that it was, you know, it was amazingly quick, uh, and that as... The, as Plummer and, and Williams are walking through these waltzers, like the first train is arriving of the morning and people are starting to get off the train uh, <laughs> as these people are dancing. But he's he, the way he talks about it, I thought was was really special, saying, you know, it's New York and these people look out and see what's going on in Grand Central Station. And, you know, they just wanted to jump in. Uh, like, of course, that's what they would see when they get off the train station in Grand Central. Of course, they would see hundreds of people waltzing. Right. Uh, and it, that felt very Gilliam to me. That felt like a very natural way to to talk about it.
1: Well, and, and they were trying to shoot the scene uh, where it, it was going to be done totally differently. It was going to have Uh, an African American woman, like a homeless woman who is going to be singing this beautiful gospel kind of singing. And it was all going to be set to her, but it just wasn't working at all. And they were trying it and trying and trying it. And Gilliam was up in the top, just looking at kind of the choreography of, of how people were moving. And, and he just kind of threw the idea out there and was just like, ah, wouldn't it be great if, if all those people just kind of hooked up with the person next to them and they all started waltzing around and, and he, as soon as he said it, he instantly dismissed it because he's like, "Well, I'm not making a you know crazy off the wall Terry Gilliam film," uh, and there and all of his crew is like, "Oh my, that that's genius! We got to do that. That's perfect!" And he's just like, "No, no, 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 no. that's over the top. That's just going to turn this this wonderful story into just a silly Gilliam film." And but they convinced him, and he's just like, "Okay." And so, uh, so luckily they did because it is one of those just beautiful moments that just captures uh, the the. Internal thoughts of these of this character in one of the most beautiful ways, and yeah, and it was and and, the, and if you see it on the wide shot, you can see um, that they didn 't even have enough people. they actually had to capture this group of people waltzing on one side and then the other and then the other, and then just kind of move them around and you can see it because some of them are kind of ghostly figures because they had to overlay the film, and so right. it made it look ghostly, but even that gives it, it gives it a feel of this kind of otherworldliness that I think fits really nicely with it.
0: I I could not agree more. It made me think of a flash mob, you know, I mean, I, and I, I had to start looking up, I wanted to see if, if, you know, there was any sort of credit uh, to this sequence in grand central uh, as a, like a, a precursor to the first flash mob, Oh, right. Uh, you know, you see these kind of random comic events or, you know, look, suddenly everybody's singing the same song kind of a thing. And and uh, I, I found no connection, but I feel like it is owed some sort of homage uh, uh, because it it feels like exactly the sort of performance art that was then later popularized.
1: Uh, well, and I did see something, and I, I don't know if this is true. Any of our listeners in New York could probably uh, tell us whether it's true or not, but I read somewhere that, uh, since this film came out, they actually do this on New Year's every year now where um, a group of people go into uh, Grand Central Station and actually wa- do a waltz in there.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I yeah. did not know that. The Grand yeah. Central Waltz. Yeah. Uh, yes. Look at cool. that. <laughs> uh, several years of waltz was held at Grand Central Terminal in New York uh, on New Year's Eve. This was inspired by the classic scene in The Fisher King. Uh, apparently, I'm not sure that it's still going on today.
1: Ah, uh, but it did go on for but a while. But it did
0: go on for some time. Yeah, uh, Yeah, it'd be interesting if anybody knows, uh, if anybody has attended the waltz. It doesn't sound like it, it took on, uh, like, thriller dance sort of stamina.
1: So they're not doing it in prisons in uh, Indonesia? <laughs> no, waltzing in prisons in <laughs>
0: Indonesia. No, no, that is the truth. All right, Uh, Mercedes Rule.
1: You know, I I love her in this, and uh, you know, I I, she's one of those people who's in so much stuff. Like I looked at, I'm like, what is she doing? Because I haven't seen her in ages, and I was like, wow, she hasn't stopped. She's just busy, busy, busy. But I like a lot of TV, movies, and TV uh, series and things that I just haven't seen at all. So um, she's definitely busy. But um, you know, she won a, an Oscar for this. I mean, for Pete's sake, you'd think that it would really take off and give her lots of great stuff. But it hasn't, at least uh, cinematically. It certainly has kept her busy, though.
0: Yeah, yeah. She's she is uh, well deserved uh, for the win in this. But I, you know, I couldn't remember who I, I didn't look up. Did you look who she was uh, who she was running against in '91?
1: I did. She was up against. Uh, Diane Ladd in Rambling Rose, Juliette Lewis in Cape Fear, Kate Nelligan in The Prince of Tides, and Jessica Tandy in Fried Green Tomatoes. Oh,
0: yeah. No contest.
1: Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen all of those, but uh, I think I've seen all but one, actually. Yeah. So, um, Wait,
0: uh, let me guess. Um, what was the one I can't remember?
1: Rambling Rose? Yeah, that's the one.
0: That's the one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never saw that I one. I haven't seen that one either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure she was better than that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, she's but... she is. Uh, I, I think you know. Whenever I, I think about the this film kind of collapsing in on its on its own identity. Uh, you know, as these as these guys go into this world of the fantastic, and they're going to go find the Holy Grail, and oh my goodness, uh, and then I just have to kind of picture her, and she is she serves as the ultimate sort of grounding uh, rod. For this film, she grounds it in in humanity, uh, I think, and she plays so honestly. Uh, yeah,
1: well, and that's what I love about the writing is that uh, just the writing itself is so honest, and and she brings this uh, honesty to that role and that it needed somebody to play it so honestly because it's written so honestly. I mean. You don't see very many actresses out there, I don't think, who could, who could pull off so well saying things like, I am not a modern woman. If we're going to end this, let's just end this. Yeah. And the way she does it, it's just like it breaks your heart. And, it, and you, at the same time, you're, so, you're on her side. And you're so frustrated with this guy who just can't get things straight
0: frustrated with him from the very beginning of their relationship when yeah. he's reading the paper in the back office of that video store and she goes right. in and tries to get him to work uh you can feel it that frustration has been building i mean that just picking up in the middle of that st- of, of their relationship story is was so powerful for me yeah. It made me feel like, oh, I, I have to go apologize to my wife for anything that I have ever done. <laughs> ever. Like I just it's it's just a horrible thing to walk in on to see him acting like that.
1: Yeah. And 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 she carries that from beginning to end. I mean, even that last scene when when he's just standing there and you're just you just are with her and she's just like, you know, you can't do this. You're just you're not can't walk in here and just <laughs> stand yeah. there you know uh she's she's great she really uh holds her own in this and uh just makes this character just so uh so true
0: well and again back to uh, Le Gravenet's script that they have such a natural arc to me um that when uh jack finds something else to latch on to uh, and he's not thinking about himself. He becomes a much more natural person, uh, you know, he's when he's thinking about Perry and what he's doing for Perry. And uh, he becomes so much more likable. And thus their relationship becomes so much more likable. And it, it ends up being uh, kind of a tragic arc because you know he's going to implode again. And you know she's going to be hurt again. Uh, but I love that sequence when they go out to dinner and they become a couple again. Yeah. Uh, and watching them at dinner, watching them kind of commiserate over the fact that uh, neither of these two people they're out to dinner with can eat like a civilized human. Uh, it is <laughs> it is a grotesque experience watching them try to deal with dumplings. Oh, it's uh, so funny. It was really funny. It's, it's really funny. <laughs> uh, okay, Amanda Plummer?
1: Uh, you know, I think that uh, Terry Gilliam and Robin Williams have both said that she's she's perfect at playing this incredibly awkward person and just like really just kind of clumsy and and just geeky, and then all of a sudden she has this almost kind of a touch of a a renaissance angel look to her that uh is just kind of like hauntingly beautiful and it's an interesting way that she can kind of go from one to the other and she does that really well and and you know she's so awkward uh all like the first times that we see her and then you see her walking home with perry and it's like you can see why he would fall in love with her it's just there's something in there and that's just it's so broken and that that monologue that she has, where she's essentially breaking up before they've even kissed, as he says um it's it's just it's it's just heartrending because she just clearly stuff has happened in her life where she just doesn't doesn't trust anything good to like to happen to her again, and that scene is just so heartbreaking and you just hear her going through that process of of painting out how things are going to happen. And you just see, there's just the, the, those tears in her eyes and you just know that something had happened and it's just, it's really heartbreaking. And it makes you fall in love with her.
0: Oh, it really does. I, you know, she's, um, I, I I don't know that I read it that same way that one of the things that I find so fascinating about her and the, and the complexity of what is really ultimately a fairly simple character is, you know, they've already set up that she, Lives in kind of a fantasy world herself, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. she she reads all of those trashy books, and um, I as I'm watching her kind of deliver her monologue I, and and deliver it with such such great uh, depth, uh, I couldn't help but think. I think she's in just as much of a fantasy world as as Perry is, and she's. Um, I think her, she's playing out one of her romance novels, and how you know she knows that there's going to be uh, sex and and then the next morning there's going to be hurt and betrayal and then there's going to be loneliness and then and then and then and and uh because uh, but it it also gives us a a sense of the great maturity that the, a glimpse of great maturity that she has to be able to even communicate that in a period when she's she's hurting yeah uh, so i i loved it i i love uh, what she what she does for the role and and how conflicted I am about her, that there are periods where, you know, when when Mercedes rule when she says, you know, you want a character, uh, you can be a real bitch. Yeah, right. uh, that that is I, I totally agree that I would not want to go out to dinner with with that version of right. Lydia. <laughs> and yet to, five minutes later to really to just sort of fall in love with her is, is yeah. magical.
1: It really is. Yeah, it truly is.
0: Uh, you've seen the the image I picked out for the hero image. Uh, oh yeah. Uh-huh. So do you know who my actually my favorite character in this film is?
1: I'm guessing it's Michael Jeter. It's Michael <laughs> Jeter. Oh
0: my goodness, he makes me so happy in this film.
1: He is great in it.
0: Uh, he is a he. Is... I had a dream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he is just just perfect in this film he is uh every scene is just the the roller coaster that he takes you on uh, you know from from burying himself under the bridge so that he will be crushed by a debutante (laughs) uh to to being uh, to have pulling himself together to have the wherewithal to deliver that cabaret number um on a desk in that office is just beautiful i think he is a a phenomenal talent uh and and was a great choice for this role.
1: Well, and then to that that third appearance where he is outside of the office after Jack has kind of climbed back up yes. the ladder again, and Jack dismisses him and just doesn't even, just completely ignores him. And it, it, it creates, and it, that's, you know, to the efficiency of screenwriting, that is a great example of very clean and simple uh, subplot character arcs you get this great relationship with uh you know Michael Jeter's character as as he first meets him befriends him gets him to help him and then ignores him and you get this beautiful uh, kind of this the story arc within the story of that character and it just it's it's heartbreaking and that's the last we see of him and it's just that is is so sad that that's how that relationship ends in the film but that is the lesson that Jack needed to learn that is kind of that final Step that he has to, uh, kind of have poke him in the eye to make him realize. I I can't listen to this you know, awful pitch about this TV show Home Free. I need to I need to finish finish this quest.
0: Yeah, yeah. You got me thinking about the the uh, efficiency of screenwriting. Comment, really? Yeah. We get his entire storyline in is it four or five scenes?
1: Yeah, it's the, it's the the park when he's going to get crushed by the debutante, right. then they take him, take him to the hospital.
0: Right, we have and the then, wonder, that and, wonderful and, and, sequence in his lap.
1: Uh, right, exactly. Right. And then we've got the cabaret, and yeah. then we've got that last scene. Four it's just scenes. Four scenes with him. And we get and his, you,
0: our whole relationship is cemented in four scenes.
1: Yep, yeah.
0: Boy, that is a great point. That is, that is beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing screenwriting uh, when you can create a character that's so indelible and sticks with you uh, long after the film is over, that only appears those four times in the script. But it gives you a full arc within the, within the story of a, of a nice subplot that works really well in the context of the story, but also is something that directly affects our protagonist. It's, it's I think, incredibly efficient. Oh. You can see why Richard LaGravenese was nominated for an Oscar for this.
0: Yeah, truly. That that's, that was beautiful uh, work. Yeah. Uh who else do you want to talk about?
1: Well, uh I mean, did, have we talked about Jeff Bridges?
0: Oh, well no. I guess we <laughs> haven't. Uh a little bit about him, but but his uh his talk about a roller coaster.
1: Yeah, I mean, you already said earlier how good he is at, at just, you know, being a somebody who's just crushed and just going through a very, very hard time. I think he does that so well. On the flip side, I think he is frighteningly good at playing the just that high-level uh, prick that you just want to punch in the face, yeah. you know? I mean, he does that so well and like the the, all of the beginning of the conversations both as the shock jock on the air when he's talking to edwin or any of the other people uh or or just like hanging out with his his girlfriend i mean he he's just kind of this ruthless character and he plays that so efficiently and and you but you can also feel that hate kind of you know that self-loathing in there and um you know, he's just—he's one of those actors who uh, I've—I've I've always loved. I think he's—he uh, can carry so much weight. And interestingly, Gilliam wasn't even considering him for the part because he just didn't seem like the sort of person at the time that would could convey that sort of uh, range in a story. And it wasn't until uh, Gilliam saw uh, the fabulous Baker Boys that he's like, "Oh, wow, maybe he actually could do this." And that's the thing that triggered him to uh, to try to get uh, Bridges on board.
0: That's one of my very favorite movies too, by the way,
1: Fabulous, Is Baker, it really?
0: Fabulous Baker Boys. I, I don't know if it's a, I don't think we can call it a guilty pleasure, uh, because <laughs> I haven't seen it since what? It probably came oh, out. Okay, no, you've seen it's been a long it. Long time, though. yeah. Well, it's it's dueling pianos. I mean, what's not to like?
1: <laughs> and Michelle Pfeiffer.
0: Yeah, but I'm a piano nerd, you know. So are you. You should <laughs> you should love this movie. Uh, I'll have to watch it again. Whatever, you don't <laughs> care about me. Uh, you know, I can't help but think about, like sometimes when you see him talking to Anne, in particular, when he's when he's being accosted and he goes into that fear place and that that sort of overstressed place, and he starts to kind of tune out. Uh-huh. Um, he's he channels uh, to me, at least. Uh, he channels uh, Starman. Oh, <laughs> you get it? Like, you get his mouth, You're like right. his jaw does that Starman thing. Right. right. <laughs> and I just like trying to swallow a lot of spit or something. You know, <laughs> that's what I get out of him. Still great, just very Starman bridges. Uh, that is funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's very funny. Yeah, uh, but he is—he's fantastic. He channels, uh, like I said, he channels uh, damage like nobody's business, and um, and uh, this film ends up being a real, I, I think, a, a wonderful showcase for his. Um, mostly because he's so good at damage and so good at, at is so natural on the microphone, you know. And I know he's yeah. practiced at it, but so natural in that studio, um, he, you know, he really nailed the shock jock. Uh, kind of uh, the shock jock uh, uh, move, you know, uh, being able to rack those tapes and to run those sounds and to run his board and to, uh, you know, um, uh, very very naturally, and it, it feels very naturally. And uh, you know, I think it feels natural when you when you have actually worked a board and had to rack tapes and had to to do that. You just realize he's he's got a lot of things going on and he's pushing all the right buttons. He actually looks really great. Yeah,
1: yeah, he does. And that's something that. That always cracks me up when I watch this movie. Is how dated all of this is. Yeah, (laughs) but but it all works. Like you know, the video spot with all the VHS tapes lined up on the shelves, and uh, him as the shock jock pulling out those tapes and everything.
0: What he's he's doing the thing when they're calling uh, Lydia to tell her she's won the 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 membership grand uh prize, and he's like trying to fast forward the cassette tapes in the in the boombox. That was awesome. (laughs) But you know, I almost think that plays better now. Uh, because it shows just how kind of anachronistic he he could be, I imagine that if they remade this movie, they could remake it and have him use cassettes and it would it would play well <laughs> like like as a character thing like he is so lost that he 's still using his cassettes
1: yeah, yeah, it could work, it
0: yeah. could work. all right uh do we, we've we have showered uh praise on richard legravveez uh at some length. Do we want to talk about uh, anything else for him?
1: Uh, just that this was really kind of his breakout uh, screenplay, I think. You know, it really kind of, um, he wrote it on spec, and uh, it is something that kind of, I think Disney first latched onto it. And he was, a you know, an early young writer when they're broke and don't have, uh, have any money. Um, they kind of uh, do whatever... You uh, want them to because they want some money, basically. And so Disney had the bright idea. I think this was—I um, uh, uh, can't remember who it was. It was Katzenberg, I think. It was uh, was the head at the time. Um, he, they, the whole, the, all the people were like, "Well, we really see it as a big set piece sort of film. Uh, we want to have this big, uh, the robbery. We want to be the big set piece." And so he had to go and rewrite it, and then he had this whole ending, where it's like, as he said, it was like laser beams and roller skates and all this silly stuff, and it's <laughs> just, yeah. you know, it it just uh, it just it wasn't working. And at the time, I guess James Cameron, there was uh, they were talk of talking about having him come in to direct it. Luckily, Disney realized that it wasn't. Uh, working and that his original script was better, but they also realized that as good as the script was, it's not a film that they would ever make because it's so dark. And as one person told him, well, there are no homeless people in Jeffrey Katzenberg's world. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that kind of just That's tells all, you that. Yeah. So uh, luckily he found the right the right people to uh to latch onto the project because I think uh, his script and Terry Gilliam's sensibilities really uh, brought things out, but I mean, he's gone on and done a, a lot more of his own scripts and a lot of just uh, you know script work, you know, hired hired uh, gun sort of uh, script writing for. Uh, for, gosh, it's like two decades now.
0: He he did, uh, immediately before The Fisher King, the script that had gotten produced was Rude Awakening, Cheech and Chong. And then he goes to The Fisher King. uh, Talk about a a, a, a tonal uh, gap. Yeah. Uh, And then to another one of my favorite comedies, uh, Dennis Leary uh, comedy, The Ref. Yeah. Which was fantastic. Talk about quotable. That's a wonderful film. And then, man, he's just all over the place with, with you know, major hits. Bridges of Madison County, Horse Whisperer. Uh, and, and he did the um, Decade Under the Influence that we've talked about before during our... Um, when yeah, was that? Right. That was the 70s, um, the 76 series? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah he's, a, he's quite gifted,
1: yeah, he really is. And uh, I always uh, when I see his name, you know, I, I feel like I feel like there's some trust there.
0: So, Yeah. 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 OK, uh, I've I've lost my tab.
1: Well, um, jumping back to the actors real quick, I just want to uh, mention Kathy Najimy, who I think is hilarious. Oh, you're this, right. Yes. In her in her one scene. And This is, remember last week, I I made a mention of a line (laughs) that I threw out there. I don't remember which episode I did, but episodes ago, I threw out the line. A little Kathy Najimi reference. I can't tell you how often I quote this character. I am always saying it. It's like, I need something, you know. Chevy Chasey, uh, (laughs) Goldie Goldie Haunty, Haunty, Chevy Chasey kind of thing. You know,
0: funny. I need to laugh. I want to (laughs) laugh with that comedian. He's on that show. You know, hey, forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Oh, my gosh. That's Brilliant. Yes. Ordinary peepholes? <laughs> Ordinary peepholes. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, that's great. You're totally right. I, I now, it's like the hot kiss at the end of a wet fist. It's all coming back to me now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have no idea which episode that was, but I, yeah, it was one of those little references I threw in. Something
0: Catherine, funny, you know. Catherine Hepburny, Carrie Granty kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Good All right. stuff. Uh do we want to talk about um the uh, uh, cinematographer uh Roger Pratt?
1: Yeah, I you know, this uh it, it's a it's a great film and I think again tying into the Gilliam-ness of it, um he does find a way to blend the the fantasy and the reality of it when the uh when the red knight appears uh, it it you know the lighting changes and it creates this much more fantastical look and I think that's a a smart way to go with that sort of thing and um, contrasting that with the 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 beautiful lighting when Perry and Lydia are on their date and they're having that that conversation as they walk I mean the lighting is just it's just gorgeous and it it makes you fall in love and so he he has this great way of playing the lighting throughout the film uh, to really work in context of the story. I think it's really solid.
0: I think he is too. I think he makes, you know, if you can say anything about, uh, about the work, you can say he really creates the city. Uh, You know, he lights the city well. Uh, he plays with the the uh, you know appropriate level of sort of um, striking shadow and striking uh, lighting, particularly in some of the vigilante sequences. I think that end up uh, really showcasing more of the Gilliamness of of um, the storytelling, the low angles uh, with the high contrast lighting. I think we end up with a with a very Gilliam frame, uh, even in the in the context of a very grounded city. I think yeah. it, it works very very well.
1: Yeah, he he adapts well to that kind of Gilliam. You know, the Dutch angles, kind of just all the right. craziness that Gilliam throws in there, the the dirtiness of things like the when you go into the hospital and the walls, they're white walls, but they're all just filthy. Uh, he adapts well to that world that Gilliam kind of creates. So New York, it is New York. This castle is in New York. The park is in New York. But everything all of a sudden has this kind of slightly different feel, and it, it works.
0: It does work. You know, it's funny. It it it, it made me think back to uh, uh, Tim Burton's Batman, and I hadn't made the connection that he actually did Tim Burton's Batman. Um, oh wow! And uh, so you know, in terms of lighting, this kind of this city and and obviously the set design, the the kind of production design of of the two are very very different. Uh, but I, I got that same feeling of of contrasts and like you say, of just the way that the, he works the camera in and out of of um, the facility of the city. I think it's very similar to me. I think it's it. I find it mildly amusing that those two films actually relate to one another.
1: Yeah, at and all. and it is, it is very funny that they, uh, the same, well, I and mean, you look at his list of things, it's yeah. quite a variety of things, right? Um, but he did go do 12 monkeys, uh, after this one with, uh, with Gilliam. And so, you know, they did clearly have some, uh, some good work together,
0: right? Right,
1: Uh, um, Leslie Walker did the editing. Um, Gilliam said that he really wanted to uh, bring a a female editor on board because he really wanted somebody who had that female sensibility. Since he had two huge female roles that really needed to, you know, make sure they're carrying the weight, and I think that was a smart decision. I think Leslie Walker does a great job with the editing in this film,
0: absolutely. I think that's an interesting thing, and I've never made that connection that there is. Uh, I, in terms of editing, I, that's not true. I have made that connection, but I didn't make that connection here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there is a, a particularly feminine editing style uh, in contrast to a masculine editing style, and it's one of those things you can you can really feel it. Uh, I think you can really feel it in those sequences where uh, Anne is dominating the scene. Uh, it it has a much less kind of frenetic uh, momentum. To the cutting, like you you don't get that sense of velocity, you let her drive that sense of velocity uh, yeah. rather than the the mo- movement of the cuts,
1: yeah, yeah, that's I think interesting you're right. yeah um George Fenton was nominated for his music in this, I think he does a a, a fantastic score i uh, I love the music I, I the the romantic music the the waltz music. The chase music, when the, the, uh, the Red Knight is uh, coming after Perry, I think it's, uh, it, there's a great blend all through, and it all ties together really nicely. Uh, not to mention, it ties together well with, with Sondheim's song, and it ties together well with the I Like New York in June song.
0: Yeah, all the way through. I don't, I don't have this soundtrack. Do you, is this one you, that you find listen toable? Uh,
1: you know, I don't actually have this one, believe it or not.
0: I don't. I, we, I, choose, I don't either. I choose <laughs> not to now. Speak truth. <laughs> I guess that'll give you something new to think about tonight. Then
1: I guess it will. <laughs> I, I feel so low now.
0: <laughs> See how quickly I did that. <laughs> you know. Shake it up. Uh, okay, uh, Melbourne. Have yeah, we talked Mel- about? We've talked about Melbourne about something, right? Did we? Have um, we talked about? Oh, the natural. Mm, yes, that's right. I knew it. That's right. Oh, got to get up pretty early. <laughs> I feel like we've sort of done a uh, credit to uh, Melbourne's work as production designer on on this film by just talking about how great he does the city uh, but the, uh, the other set pieces that I find really engaging that I like so much and maybe again these are, are these shine for me because of the performances that were going on in them like they really work as a total scene. Uh, you know the, uh, the domicile, Perry's domicile uh, is a wonderful um, wonderfully eclectic uh, home. Uh, with all oh, yeah. the candles, I just it works really, really well for me uh, and the uh, the apartment above the video store um, you know I think Lydia says it uh, you know she says i 've always wanted to be in an apartment above a, a above a store i know they 're there, uh, but i 've never been <laughs> in one you know it 's just it's this wonderful sequence it makes you stop and look at. The place and I think that's a that's a wonderful trick and it, it sort of showcases the work that went into making this home and I think it feels really very natural it feels very well used um,
1: and and it feels right for the characters yeah, too right you know and I think that's a, a key part of it is that Melbourne and Cindy Carr and and their team of of the production uh, Designed the art, you know, the art direction of the of the whole film. They really get into these characters' heads, and in a way, they kind of become the characters themselves, trying to figure out what knickknacks are going to go well with. The, you know, what would Anne have in her kitchen? What would Perry have right. in this corner of of the basement? And I think that they work. Uh, really well together to create this world like you said and not just those but but everywhere like, like just dressing the locations the that when you're like down by the river where jack's going to kill himself it's it's got that kind of run down trashy just look yeah. but it also just kind of it, it i don't know it works well kind of for the the place where he's rescued and I, I, there's something about that that works And the hospitals too that i already mentioned with kind of this this dirty walls that Gilliam loves so much. Yes. Um, Yeah, all
0: all through it. You know, it really comes into to in, it it really shines in contrast to, again, the previous three uh, Gilliam films. This, the the production design is so grounded. uh, Yeah. Maybe that's why it is so striking um, and that uh, you know, it feels so novel, that it's so not Gilliam. Uh, It feels really down to earth. Well, and I can't believe I, we think, talked about him with Thief too, and it's a very similar thing, dressing the city.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's something that um, you know Gilliam creates these worlds so well that even when they're fa- whether they're fantastical or whether they're grounded in a city like New York present day, it all has a feel to the to it, you know, and you can you can get a sense of the dirt in the city and you can get a vibe and, and you can really you're the, you can tell that this project is completely connected to the world in which they're showing us.
0: Yeah, totally, totally, totally. So, uh, okay. Anybody else you want to talk about before we talk numbers?
1: Um, I think that is it. Oh, did we mention that Robin Williams was nominated for an Oscar, um, uh, for best actor in this I,
0: film. I but, don't think we mentioned that. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. Uh, the, uh, the only win, I think, right, was, was Mercedes Rule.
1: Yeah, Mercedes Rule is the only win. Uh, Robin Williams, Best Actor. Richard LeGravine's Best Original Screenplay. Mel and Cindy Carr, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration. George Fenton, Best Original Score. They were all nominated. They did not win. Um, this was the year of The Silence of the Lambs. So that was uh, you know kind of the big sweep. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins uh, won for uh, playing Lecter, uh, so he beat out uh, Robin Williams. And, uh, you know, there's something to be said for that, I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. So, so how did it do? Does this, did this, in, in some small part, redeem the, uh, the budget challenges that came from Munchausen?
1: Well, you know, Munchausen did prove to be such a a problem for for Gilliam, which is unfortunate. I mean, immediately after, he was actually all set to direct The Watchmen. I don't know if you knew that, but he was going to do that and, uh, with uh, Joel Silver. But that uh, the the financing never came through, and a lot of that was because Munchausen had— well, we didn't trust uh, him, right? Yeah, they are like, well, we're not going to give you any money. And Joel Silver had just done— uh, Die Hard too, and he overspent on that, and it didn't perform as well as, as the, everybody was hoping. So between those two films, everyone was like, "Well, we're not going to give you any money." And so it, it took a while, and Gilliam, you know, went through kind of a depression, trying to figure out what he's going to do. And he latched onto it, and I, I think that you know he said that the three rules he had were: don't film in uh, in the U.S., don't film uh, with a studio, and don't work on anyone else's script he opted to break <laughs> he opted to break all of those rules um, because he really wanted to prove that he could do it and he did it it really came through um the budget for this was 24 million dollars and i only found domestic numbers as far as uh how much the movie made but um but even just domestically it ended up making almost 42 million dollars And so um, I don't know what it made internationally, but just domestically, it it turned a profit. And so that showed to everybody that, you know, this is a guy who can make a movie. It's not just Munchausen after Munchausen after Munchausen. Um, He actually can uh, make a good project. And I think at the same time, it also showed Gilliam that, hey, it's not so bad working in the States. It's not so bad making a script uh, that somebody else wrote. When he finds the right people... Who have his sensibilities, like Richard um, that they actually can all help each other make a better project that ends up making money at the box office. And I think that was a great turning point for him. So, uh, you know, all told, the film ended up making adjusted profit per finish minute of about $222,000. So...
0: Not a bad return. Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, All right. Let's, uh, Let's flick chart it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can find our stack rankings of all of our favorite films, and uh, we will see. Uh, you should you should join if you haven't joined. Join up with Flickchart, Chart, and uh, then friend us. Whatever the word is, you should do that with us. Like us, right. friend us, whatever. And then we'll see if, if our top lists match your top list. That would be great. Mm. Mm.
1: Ooh. All right, here we go. The Fisher King or... Pete's new favorite movie, Knowing. <laughs> oh,
0: my God. That's going to be every week for a while, isn't it? Uh, I don't know.
1: Probably not. I, I, I think that more and more films will end up beating Knowing. so it'll.
0: The Fisher King, please. Yeah,
1: yes. The Fisher King or Forrest Gump.
0: I will take The Fisher King.
1: That's a tricky one. I actually
0: think I would go Fisher King. I think I would. <laughs> wow. I wow. Know.
1: The Fisher King or No Country for Old Men
0: I will go The Fisher King Really
1: <sighs> mm hmm Mhm I'm torn on that one man That's a tough one
0: I'm I am not uh torn at all if that helps
1: all right. Well, since since you're not torn at all and I'm torn, I'll I'll go with you since <laughs> okay. I, I feel like I feel like this is one where I really could go either way. It's it's very yeah. much a mood thing. Okay. The Fisher King or Brazil? Oh, there you go. You know which way Bra- I fall. Brazil. This one. I would go with Brazil. <laughs> and, right.
0: and I feel like we should we should well we'll save it. But I want to I want to read uh, the Blot comment for the week on Brazil. Oh. Okay. When we finish.
1: The Fisher King or Aliens?
0: Oh. <laughs> I mean please. Aliens.
1: <laughs> you said that and I'm like, what, what oh please what? Which <laughs> which way is he going on this one? Uh, yeah, I, I I could go to Fisher King, but I, I think I will go uh aliens with you. Fisher King or the French Connection.
0: Uh the Fisher King. I actually agree.
1: I was I wasn't sure I was going to, but uh The Fisher King or the Matrix
0: All right, now it's your turn. I'm torn. I am genuinely torn.
1: I They I, both represent just such I, different things for I know.
0: me. I think I'm going to have to go That's to the Matrix. Hard
1: yeah, I am going to have to go to the Matrix, too. Yeah. Number 15. There you go.
0: There you go. That feels, that feels good. It feels about yeah. right. Yeah, it
1: feels, it feels close. Yeah, it feels, uh, yeah. I, I feel like it's pretty good being up there.
0: I I hope uh, the the good uh, Ben Lott uh, jumps in on this film. I'd be very curious what he thinks of it, especially coming from his comment on uh, Brazil. The blot score of the week uh, was, I'm going to judge this as a uh, kind of Uh, I was about to say middle finger, but that's not what I mean. You know that Roman thing where they do the thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, and I guess you go right right. in the middle, you know, that's what I I meant. It's sort (laughs) of a middling, uh, a middling Roman vote. We don't go to the lions, but we don't get to eat tonight. Um, Just thought I'd throw in my two cents, uh, uh, Ben says, since it's kind of become a tradition for me to do so. And a wonderful tradition that is. I liked some aspects of Brazil, but I just didn't get it. So much of it flew over my head and that took me completely out. Out of the film. Seems like one that might benefit from multiple viewings. Not bad, just confusing. <laughs> Glad you love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I found that a really interesting comment because I don't think of it since I've seen the movie so many times, I don't think of it as a, a first viewing experience. I can totally see why he would be confused on a first viewing.
1: Yeah, and it really did kind of uh take me I had to take a step back as well and go. What was that first viewing like? Was I? Was it really confusing for me too? And because I, I really can't quite remember if it, if I was just like confused by the story or like what the heck is going on in this crazy world that right. Terry Gilliam is creating here. I, I don't remember, but it definitely is eye opening. It, and it something, is something like you said that we just haven't thought of. Like put ourselves into that that perspective in years,
0: yeah. decades. Yeah. It's that it's that question. Do you remember where you were the first time you saw Brazil? I don't. I don't consider there was a first time that I saw Brazil. It has always been, and right. it always will be. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I I, uh, I look forward to the block comment on uh, the Fisher King and see how this holds up in his uh, in his Gilliam score. So um, fun uh, fun times. Where do we go from here? I think Absolutely. you already spoiled it.
1: Uh, yeah, I spoiled it right at the beginning. Uh, yeah, we're gonna be finishing up our Gilliam uh, series next week with none other than Twelve Monkeys.
0: This I, I'm looking forward to this film uh, because I I have not seen this of all of the Gilliam films we've talked about. This is the one I've seen the least. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and so I I think I, it's fair to say right now I have I have no opinion on this film. <laughs>
1: Well, I know we saw it together a, a time or two. Yeah,
0: I, I know we did, and and yeah, and I remember pieces of it, but it's it, it yeah, 1995. Yeah. We we saw this in the theater together.
1: Very likely,
0: I'm sure of it. Yeah. All right. Well, this is going to be awesome. Uh, wrapping it up next week, and uh, I think that's all we've got. This was a good talk. I uh, I gotta go to bed.
1: The answer: two dwarves and a melon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's great about that is you couldn't hold in the laugh. I couldn't. <laughs> you couldn't hold in the laugh. It's so nonsensical. Like why would I even <laughs> say that? <laughs> <laughs> my review
1: Mm -hmm. from amazon Mm -hmm. is
0: titled the worst movie ever made by roger ebert i mean uh jim (laughs) pesky this is from december 8th 1998 he wrote this review the fisher king is a disappointing myriad of chaotic film sequences uninspiring characters and a deliberately meaningless title It mixes random delusion fantasy sequences in a pale attempt to feign creativity. Viewers seeking a sensible, straightforward plot will be sorely disappointed. Viewers who prefer creative fantasy movies will likely be insulted by this poor attempt to fill their needs. The Fisher King's only value is that of a poor abstract painting. People can look at it and pretend to each other that they, quote, understand the deeper meaning. This film is about as deep as a cookie sheet. I, wow. I read these, I was like, they didn't see the same movie Like, I think he may have watched it on mute Maybe Didn't get the, like, story? What?
1: They pretty much spell it out for They you. spell it
0: out <laughs> They tell a two-minute monologue that talks about why the movie is called what it is <laughs> The main set piece at the end of the film is finding the grail from the story about the title <laughs> How do you miss that?
1: Uh, what's <laughs> yours mine is by uh andy williamson no redeeming value whatsoever One star. Uh, i nearly hated this film i'm a former film student current film lover reader researcher and all-around film nerd but i just did not connect one iota with this dismal movie i love brazil and 12 monkeys and enjoy much of terry gilliam's other work but what in the heck is this there is good weird, Brazil, and then bad weird, of which this film is one example. The story seems tied together in only the loosest meaning of the word. The relationships and coincidences just had me saying, come on the film seems rambling and disjointed maddeningly so i also found the murder seemed to be horribly jarring and unnecessarily grotesque yeah that's my idea of a good time so <laughs> blame me if you will but this film is garbage i didn't have the opportunity to be engaged in it. it bored me so robin williams in the buff ugh okay not my idea of great filmmaking i kept searching for some greater point idea or point to tie everything together. And I didn't find it granted. I only saw the film once, but if it is so bad that I have no desire to ever see it again, even for the sake of figuring it out, then a one star rating is more than appropriate. Sorry folks. This ain't what it's cracked up to be. I don't mind being depressed by a film. If there is some point to it all, but here,
0: (laughs) goodness again, watched it on mute. I'm almost sure that that's what's happening.
1: Ugh, or maybe they're watching it in reverse.
0: It's possible. (laughs) I uh, I think next week we we can't do one star reviews. These are two these are two downer too much of a downer.
1: They are man, people are harsh.
0: They really are. I just Although don't get it. the the uh, the response the the Bone Man responded to the to the comment that you just read, and he he writes a really great response. He actually he outlines the whole thing for that, uh, for Andy.
1: That makes it so much yeah, better. It
0: makes it so much better. He did it you know, about seven years too late, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he did it. <laughs> but at least he did it. <laughs> oh, I take it back, 11 years. He did 11, 11 years, years later, right? he responded. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM.